continuing our uh, study of the Ten Commandments. Um, we started actually a couple of weeks ago, and then obviously not last week. Um, but, uh, but we're going to be going through um, these Ten Commandments because uh, they are important. Because of what they do for us. Because they show us what God's holiness looks like. It shows us um, what it is that we are to be striving for. Not because we strive to do these things so that we can earn God's grace, but because God's grace has been shown to us that we can respond in the pursuit of Him and in the pursuit of holiness. That's kind of what we talked about two weeks ago. And so this week we're getting into, we're going to get into it. So we're going to get into the first commandment. So our, our reading this morning is very short, but I would ask you to stand with me as we read together. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Do not have other gods besides me. This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it. And live it. Let's pray. Dear God, as we worship you this morning, as we strive to have no other gods before you, as we strive to put you first and foremost in our lives, as we, as we seek to, to rip the idols out of our, ha- our hearts and minds, I just pray that you would be with us as we open your word and as we study it this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, to you who are our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there are some things that, that uh, um, are just not meant to be shared, right? Now, I know that like, we, all, we all love that, that, that poster, you know, everything in life I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. You've seen that poster, right? One of those things right, is to share. It's one of the lessons that we, we try and teach our little ones as they get old enough to learn how to share. We, you want them to share, you know, share your toys and share your time. And there are things that are good about sharing, of course. But there are some things that are not meant to be shared. Bite-sized Snickers are not made to be shared. Unicycles not made to be shared. Secrets are not made to be shared. The love and intimacy, both emotional and physical, that exists between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage, not meant to be shared. A statement that five or six years ago wouldn't have been that controversial, but now could get me in a lot of hot water. There are things in life that are not meant to be shared. They're not created from the beginning to be shared. Now, if there are some things that are not intended to be shared, then it shouldn't surprise us that when it comes to God, there are some things that aren't meant to be shared. God is not meant to be shared. Our loyalty to God is not meant to be shared with anything else. This is, this is the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. Have no other gods before me. There's a reason that this is the first commandment. This is the, this is the foundation that all of the other commandments are built on. You know, you've got to have a, a solid foundation before you build something, right? 
You can't just you can't just throw some stuff, particularly around here. You can't just throw some stuff on the ground and build up on it and expect it to be stable, can you? In, in our in our backyard, our 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 dirt in our backyard is so soft that if I go out with a chair that's got a foot on it that's like that, and I sit in that chair, I sink into the ground. But if I, if I get the chair, one of our folding lawn chairs, right, that's got the bigger foot on it, and I go and I put that down, I can sit around the fire pit, and I am not in danger of falling over and making a fool of myself. Because the, the foundation, the thing that you're, that you're putting on is solid, right? When we built this, this utility building, right after I got here, one of, the, one of the big expenses was the foundation. Making sure that the foundation was solid. Because if you don't have a solid foundation, things can't stand up under their own weight. And so, before we know what else God... Uh, what, the other things about God's holiness that we learn in the Ten Commandments, before we, we know that, we need to know who God is and what our relationship to Him is. And what we see is we see a God that will not share Himself. He is the one and only God. It's God standing before his people at Sinai and saying, guess what? It's me, bub. That's it. Me, myself, and I. There's nobody else. God does not lay claim to only a portion of our lives. God doesn't say, okay, I'll let you have have this portion that you can give to me. It's, It's not an hour on Sunday morning. It's not even an hour on Sunday morning, an hour on Sunday evening, and an hour on Wednesday evening. God demands of us our whole lives. He demands that we dedicate all that we are and all that we have to His service and His praise. There's a a phrase that came out of the Reformation. You may have seen me use it on occasion. In Latin, it's sole deo gloria. One of the the five solas of the Reformation. Sola meaning only. That is the original meaning of solo, right? Was by yourself. Solo does not, in fact, mean red plastic cup. Solo. Deo. It's Latin for God. Gloria. I think we probably figured that one out too, right? Glory. Sola Deo Gloria. For the glory of God alone. That's what he calls on for us. For to live for his glory and his glory alone. And so as we turn to these just few words, do not have other gods besides me. Seven words. That's it. 
As we turn there, let's look first at other gods. Where are the people coming from? They're coming out of Egypt, right? They're at Sinai. They're coming out of Egypt. Does anybody know anything about ancient Egyptian religion? There was, there was more than one god, right? There were, there were lots of them. I mean, to the point that, that even the pharaohs were seen as being gods. You had Horus and Isis and Osiris and Anubis and there are others. Those are the ones that show up in the Stargate franchise, so those are the ones that I know. There are all these gods that are coming out of Egypt. And if you go back and if you read really carefully throughout Scripture, what you'll see is that God's people, while Abraham had been called out and, and God had been served in Abraham and in Isaac and in Jacob, and that God had even saved Jacob's sons by bringing them down into Egypt. They had been in Egypt so long that they had begun to worship the gods of Egypt. So let's remember that, that as God is pulling his people out of Egypt, he is pulling a people out of Egypt who has not been faithful to him. These are, these are people who, who, who have spent years in worship of someone or something other than God. And see, here's the thing. We're all made to worship. We're made to worship. We're going to worship something. So the question isn't whether or not you worship something. The question is, whether, the question is what you worship. Because we're made to worship. God, when he made us, he made us to be people who worshiped. And the problem is, is that we take what we're supposed to worship, which is God, and we displace it and we'll put something else in that place. And the word that we have in the Bible for that is idolatry. We, we take something and we make it an idol. We make it the object of our worship. And that's primarily what this first commandment is talking about. It's talking about idolatry. Replacing that which we should be worshiping, God, the creator of the universe, the God who, as he's speaking to the people of Israel, who has just rescued them out of Egypt, and we place with something else. We'll put someone or something else on the throne instead of God. What we end up doing is we end up exchanging the glory of the Creator for the, the dim reflection that we see in the created thing. We see over again, and when we get to next week and we talk about graven images, we'll talk about this a little more, but, but you see throughout Scripture when, when the prophets are coming after the people for worshiping idols, they always talk about them being made of wood and of stone. The idols that are made of the very thing that God had made. The Creator. Not the created. See, this, this first commandment, this is a statement. It's a statement against atheism. Atheism. Because it's God saying there is a God, 
and I am him, and you are going to worship me. And it's also a statement against polytheism, against multiple gods. It's God saying, that's it, it's me, that's all there is. And you shall have no other gods. You know, there's this question sometimes about what's the big deal about idolatry, right? Like, like if it's a false god, if it's not real, what's, what's the big deal if somebody worships it? Well, besides the fact that God demands our worship, even false gods can develop and hold a spiritual power over those who worship them. When you worship something, you are turning a part of your life, a part of your will over to the thing that you are worshiping. You you lose a little bit of that power. And here's the thing about false gods. They aren't real. Osiris isn't like a real dude floating around somewhere, right? Zeus, Zeus isn't actually up on Olympus with a, with a trash can full of lightning bolts. I mean, okay, come on, it's Zeus. Like, we all know that like, somebody made him like, a really nice container, but he lost it at some point, and he totally has replaced it with a trash can. But these, these false gods, they aren't real, but they can still hold this spiritual power over us because when we open ourselves up and when we allow ourselves to worship something or someone other than the one true God, we are opening ourselves up to demonic spiritual power. There are a lot of people who will tell you, oh, it's not a real thing and yet they're fully controlled by it. Can you be controlled by something that's not real? It creates a problem in us. And that's what happened with the, with, the, with the Israelites. They had been in Egypt. They had been worshiping these false gods. They had found themselves in slavery. They had turned themselves over to, to people and things and, and false gods other than the one true God. And how does God rescue them? What does he do? There's that series of plagues. Couldn't think of the word plague there for a second. There's a series of plagues, right? Has anybody ever told you that each of those plagues attacked an Egyptian deity? Each of those plagues is done in such a way to to show that these Egyptian deities, they aren't the ones who have the power. The people have been brought out of Egypt because God has broken the power of the false gods of Egypt and He has shown that He alone is worthy. You remember the story of Elijah on the mountain with the prophets of Baal? And he, he lets them go all day trying to get Baal to, to bring fire down on the altar. 
And then what does Elijah do? He shows, he shows the majesty and the glory of the true God because he douses the altar with bucket after bucket after bucket of water and so much water that the water has filled up the trenches around the altar. And then he calls fire down from heaven, from God, to break the power of the false god, to show that there are no other gods but God alone. So you shall have no other gods. But then there's this second phrase. In the, in, in the CSB that we read today, it says, besides me, often you'll see before me. That's a strange, a strange phrase, right? And I think sometimes we end up interpreting that, and, and it turns into this thing that it, what it means is, is, that, is that we can have other objects of worship as long as we put God first. You shall have no other gods before me. So you can have other gods after me, right? Except that's not what before me means here. Before me, it, it, it really, it's, it's a Hebrew phrase to mean before my face. You shall have no other gods in my presence. Well, where's God present? Everywhere. Have no other gods in my presence, and my presence is everywhere, so guess what? Have no other gods. Again, it's the point. It's all or nothing. Reflect or reject false gods and choose him to be Lord. To be Lord. Telling us both whom to worship as well as what not to worship. It's telling us to worship him, but also to not worship false gods. Remember the Shema? We, we, we looked at the Shema a few months ago. This prayer from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, hear, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall, worship, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Notice there in the Shema, this idea is to love. Love the Lord your God. And, and love is the right word here as we seek to worship Him because, because it's about relationship. Notice what God says. He says, you, singular. Sometimes in English it's hard. I, I wish Bible translators would adopt Southern colloquialisms and put y'all in Scripture when it's plural. It is such a useful word. But here, it's not, this isn't a plural you. This is a singular you. He is talking to us as individuals. You, as an individual, shall have no other gods before me. That's pretty personal, isn't it? Because he wants exclusive relationship with us. Shall have no other gods. There isn't anything else besides me, in front of me, in front of my face. Have you all ever known someone, or maybe, maybe unfortunately you've been on the receiving end of this, in a relationship, and the other person in the relationship has cheated on you? It's bad enough, right? Right? But then when 
they get to a point, maybe they've left you and they, and they start flaunting it in your face. Makes you feel a certain kind of way, doesn't it? That's what God's talking about. Don't cheat on me. And don't cheat on me in front of everybody else. Have exclusive relationship with me. Tear down your idols. And lift up me alone. But how can we test? How can we test for idolatry? I don't think any of us, I I doubt very seriously any of us wake up in the morning and be like, okay, today is the day that I'm going to worship an idol. I don't think we do that. Now, if you do do that, we need to have another conversation. The church office opens at 8.30. I'm here until 5. Give me a call. We'll have that conversation. But I think for most of us, who certainly those of us who are believers, that we don't wake up in the morning saying, hey, I'm going to lift up an idol. And I think a lot of us have a hard time because we're like, well, man, I'm not... I'm not praying to Baal. I'm not praying to Azrath. I'm not praying to Osiris or to Zeus or to whoever else, right? So I don't have a problem with idolatry. But we still have idols. Have any of y'all ever read the novel American Gods by Neil Gaiman? Neil Gaiman's a British contemporary fiction fantasy sort of author. And he wrote this book a number of years ago called American Gods. And in it, the idea is, is that all of these false gods are actually real. But the old gods, meaning the gods that we know about, Zeus and Poseidon and Ashrath and Baal, they are gradually fading. Because the power in the world has shifted to America. And in America, we have American gods. Sex, money, power. These are lifted up and shown in the book as being, uh, I, mean, he, I mean, he obviously he personifies them, right? He makes them like actual, you know, people. I don't know if people is the right word, but beings walking around. But that's the thing that we do, right? We've, we've replaced, we, maybe they don't call them some weird name anymore, but we still are replacing God with other things in our life. We're still lifting up idols in his place. And so there are two tests. There are two two idol tests. The first is this. The first we can call the love test. It's very easy. Ask yourself the question, what do I love? What do I love? What do you desire? When you, when you close your eyes, what do you see? If you had been smart enough last night to put a little bit of money on the 80 to 1 odds horse that ended up happening to win the Kentucky Derby, and now you've got a lot of money, what are you going to spend it on? after you tithe to the church. What gets you excited? 
What are you passionate about? That's the love test. And see, here's the thing. There are all sorts of good things that we can love. We can love family. And family is awesome. Man, we need to love our family. But we can love it in such a way that we end up placing it in front of God. We can, we can love a hobby. Some of y'all love hunting. There's nothing wrong with hunting. It's a good thing. It's a really good thing if venison ends up on my front porch. But y'all know people, and I know you do, I know you know people, that it, it consumes them, right? It becomes all they care about. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine from over close to Chadburn this week, and we were talking, and he had been out that morning, he had been out turkey hunting, and I was saying, and I was saying man, I didn't realize spring turkey season was still, was still going on. When does it end? And he says, well, it ends for me on Saturday. And I said, okay. He goes, well, the last day of hunting season is Sunday, but I never hunt on Sunday. How many of you have known, known folks it doesn't matter if it's Sunday or not. They're going to be in the deer stand. See, there are good things that we can do, but then they replace God. So let's ask ourselves, what do we love? That's the first test. The second test is this. We'll call it the trust test. What do you trust? To what or to whom do you turn in times of trouble? Now, this one, I think, is the one that's going to get us in more trouble than the love test. Because I think those of us who, who, who grew up in the church, who are in the church, who spend any time in the church, we, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we love these things, but we've got an ordered relationship with them. But when we turn to the trust test, this is where we can get ourselves in trouble. What do you trust? To what do you turn when times are tough. Do you trust your job? It's going to get you through. What about your insurance? Your pension? Is it the government? Or politics? That's going to solve the problems. Maybe it's your family. Maybe, again, coming back to family. You love your family. But I'm going to turn to my family first. In times of trouble. I'm going to take care of my family first in times of trouble. Over the last two years, for a lot of people, it's been quote unquote science and medicine. How many times have we heard, trust the science? As if science is a thing and not a method of inquiry. Sometimes these are all positive things, right? Sometimes we can turn to, to negative things in times of trouble. Sometimes we can turn to addictions in times of trouble, can't we? I had an opportunity this week. I, was meet, I met a, a woman in our community, and we were talking, and she told me that she was two years sober that day, two years clean that day, but that she was having a really hard day. And would I pray with her? And I prayed with her, and then I made sure I went and saw her the next day to see how she was doing. Because that's what addiction will do, right? It'll make you turn to unhealthy things 
in times of trouble. It will make you turn to alcohol or to drugs or to shopping or to food. What's the trust test? Who do you trust? See, God can use these things. God can use the positive things. Our, our job and our pension, our, our insurance, the government, politics, family, science, medicine. God can use these things to care and provide for us, but our ultimate confidence needs to be in Him alone. Here's the other thing. This is the one that I think gets most of us. Who do I, what can I trust? When times get tough, what can I trust? I can trust me. I can trust me. Religion of self. There was a lady, and I feel really bad for her because she has been used in so many sermon illustrations. Her name is Sheila Larson. She was part of a study on American religion that was done a number of years ago by Robert Bella. This is what Sheila said when she was asked what she believed. She said, I believe in God. But I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. Faith has carried me a long way. Now, if we hear that statement, that's a statement that many of us maybe agree with. Maybe we've heard. Maybe we've said ourselves. But Sheila continued. Sheila said the quiet part out loud. Faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism. Just my own little voice. What do we love? Too many of us are infatuated with ourselves. Whom do we trust? We trust and believe in ourselves. You know, we, we, we can say that, that we want God, but then we spend most of our time thinking about our own needs, our own wants, our own plans, our own problems, our own desires. Spending a lot of time this week thinking about relativism, moral relativism, because this is what I do on my spare time. There's a line from... from Jean-Paul Sartre, who's a French philosopher, existentialist philosopher, said this, he said, he said, man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. Is that not the late 20th century, early 21st century summed up in a sentence? Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. One of the reasons I've been thinking about Moral relativism is the existence of the law. The existence of the Ten Commandments pushes back against it. It says that there is an objective standard that comes from outside of us. An objective standard of holiness that we are to pursue. She'll have no other God besides me. Who is this God? John 14 tells us, for if you have known the if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Talking about Jesus. Jesus is the God that we are called to be in relationship with, to fall deeply and passionately in love with. Let's go back and think about the love test. 
What do you love? What do you desire? Do you love God? Do you desire to see God working in your life? Do you desire the things that God desires? What gets you excited? Is it serving God? Do you get up in the morning excited about what God has in store for you? When you close your eyes, what do you see? Do you see God? Do you even know God well enough to be able to see God when you close your eyes? What about the trust test? What do you trust? When times get tough, to whom do you turn? When times get tough, do you you get on your knees and pray? Or do you get on the phone and call mom? Or your sister? Or your cousin? Or your banker? Or your stockbroker? Brothers and sisters, there are idols in our hearts. And we need to tear them down. And have no other gods but God. Our hymn of invitation this morning is hymn number 305. I have decided.